0: Welcome to this week's Made in Scotland podcast, sponsored by Ogilvy Ross, I'm Gary Robinson. This week's guest is uh, a hypnotist, Patrick Brady. 60% of the world knows him as Patrick Brady. Uh, The remaining smaller part has Scott Brady. So Scott Patrick Brady, to give you your full birth name, uh, hopefully in the next half hour we'll find out a little bit more about you and what makes you tick, because I've got a bit of paper here, and I know this is audio, but I've got a bit of paper here that makes very interesting reading. May I pick out a couple of points? Yeah, please. Thank you. Well, born educators in Dundee. Ambitions to become a chartered accountant, mm-hmm. although that didn't happen, I believe.
1: No, it's uh, uh,
0: not even remotely. Uh, born into a difficult, as it says here, working class family in working class family circumstances, heavily yes. involved in politics and uh, political meetings from an a- early age in Dundee. At that time, in the early sixties, a very militant city. It was uh, and very uh, industrial, um, but became. Well, well. Let's say uh, an entrepreneur, a legal brain, mm-hmm. um, a rat catcher, one of those, <laughs> and uh, and, uh, and now a hypnotist. Uh, thank you for being here. Ah, thank it's you, a thank you. Privilege uh, and a pleasure to. I touched very briefly on your on your upbringing, and uh, you were born back in nineteen sixty one, and different times, and particularly in Dundee. Dundee mm-hmm. was this, this this hot pot really of of militancy uh, and uh, and industry at the time. And you were born into that.
1: Tell me a little bit, if you will, about your about your early years. On reflection, it was only a decade and a half after the end of the Second World War, so hello although... The Second World War meant nothing in my life. The whole culture in Britain and the city of Dundee must have been affected by that experience. And I often reflect that I had a, a grandfather that fought in the Second World War. I had a great-grandfather that fought in the First World War. But even after having been through two wars, here I was in 1961, still being brought up in a slum property. We shared a room. Uh, There was myself, my father, my mother and my brother. The room was the kitchen, the room was the bedroom. We had no toilet accommodation Uh, that was outside of the property and shared by, I'm sure, six other families. So, of course, at that time, I actually thought when I initially went to school and met people who had a toilet in their house, I actually thought we were the higher part of society and that they couldn't afford the toilet outside. <laughs> and was was Dundee was Dundee a tale of two cities at that time was there extreme poverty and then extreme wealth. Dundee was unique not because I knew it to be to be unique but there was a very well known uh, Dundee trade unionist called Harry McClevey, who was a Dundee communist and marxist who used to say, with all his experience of traditional activity and Scotland's industrialisation, that Dundee was unique because it was the only city in the UK, he said, that had no middle class. was, Was that true? I think it was true. Because if you even just look at the housing stock in the city of that time, it was comprised of a lot of slum property and some enormous wealth. And there was a time that a part of Dundee had more millionaires per square mile than any other part of Europe. Now, some people would say, well, the same was true of Edinburgh and Glasgow. And I would say, well, no, Harry McLevey was probably right on reflection that Dundee did not have a middle class, whereas Glasgow and Edinburgh had a very flourishing and aspiring and rising middle class. So I grew up into that working class, poor class family, in poor accommodation. And even in that uh, very, very poor circumstances, uh, I have memories of a four-year-old that even within those poor circumstances, we were, we were encouraged to look down on people further down the road who were poorer than us. Wow, so there was even even sn- snobbery built in it? Snobbery, because was it was really given the name of the end-pinned. Don't play with the kids from the end-pinned. Uh, and, of course, I thought we were quite well up the higher st- social strata, and I could understand that. Little did I know that uh, because of... Not only the property we in, but because of my dad's involvement in trade unionism, uh, that we we were uh, probably at the very lower end of getting through each day and each week, uh, just surviving. So, you, your father uh, must have
0: been a man who who had very strong, very strong and unwavering
1: beliefs. That's well said. Uh, I think. Th- both of those things are correct. He was also a man of principle. Uh, he probably had ambitions for his family to be better than him. He came from Dundee working class stock himself, returned from his national service to work in a factory on a production line, and for reasons I don't really know, found himself not only to be a trade unionist, but to be one of the youngest shop stewards' conveners so he there are i do have photographs of him talking to throngs of people in dundee city square addressing meetings where he was calling for walkouts and strike action uh, and for total walkouts and for factories to be closed down in order for the workers to get a, a rise in their wages so my early childhood was of my father leading quite a number of strikes in dundee which meant not only was he well-known in trade union circles for that, and by the local press, that we had no money coming in. And unpopular at times, I would imagine. Unpopular, because even as a child, uh, in the property that we were in, uh, there were no supermarkets, no shopping malls at that time, so all our shopping was done locally. All of the shopkeepers and businesses nearby were affected by the fact that many of the people living in that area were on strike and had no money to spend. And I do remember that we could not get our clothes washed. I remember coming out of a laundrette with Mother because she'd taken our dirty clothes in and being told she wasn't allowed in the place because my father was a strike leader. And that memory at four-year-old still stays with me to this
0: day. So that time must have been, what, 65? Mm. Which, you know, in the grand scheme of things, wasn't that long ago.
1: Not that long ago, uh, but we did progress and we did move out into other uh, properties, but (laughs) it seemed grand at the time, but we ended up going uh, as a six-year-old after i completed one year at a primary school. Uh, We then moved out to a multi-storey dwelling. Which would have been a new build at that time? New build at that time, uh, but again, not only now was it my father and my mother uh, and my brother, But for a period of time, considering it was only a two bedroom property, for a period of time we then had my lovely sister who then joined us later on and a grandmother who stayed with us. So although we'd moved up into a slightly better property with an indoor toilet, I still have a sense of living in an overcrowded property and that that was the case up until the time I was 21 years of age. You excelled at school, though head boy, editor of the school newsletter,
0: uh, running the the school debating society. So, your 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 upbringing and, and the you know the you know the atmosphere and the the housing that you were initially brought up in, then moving to the uh, multi storeys, didn't affect you in terms of your education or your or your thirst for knowledge and wanting to get
1: on. Yeah, and I don't know why. I, I would say that I was a very intense child. Intensity and uncertainty is practically all I knew. I wouldn't say, and I know many people talk about happy childhoods and what have you. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say an unhappy childhood or an unhappy family home. But uh, the the abiding feature of my early years was a degree of intensity and uncertainty as to how you got through each day, uh, which sounds really, <laughs> sounds really not a happy place to be. And I don't think it was, actually, because growing up uh, as, a, as, a, as a child I found to be a difficult experience.
0: I want to move you on a little bit because I want to start to talk about areas of leadership and entrepreneurship that you are absolutely known for. Um, but how? And I jokingly, tongue in cheek, talked went through your CV and said "rat catcher," which which may uh, which may have made a couple of ears prick up. But it was a lot more than that. Tell me about the business that you, that you started.
1: Well, after having studied in Edinburgh for four years, I then came back to my home city and got a job in public health because my primary uh, qualification was in public health and I found myself working local authority in a public health role uh, with the task of improving housing, with dealing with communicable diseases which was still a feature of uh, tenemental property life and people living on top of each other uh, poor public health conditions, social conditions in Dundee. Even in the late seventies, still had a long way to go. Uh, although we had good and wholesome water supplies, there were still many slum properties in the city at that time. So I played a role uh, in trying to to deal with that and make the city a better. Area And after 13 years of having done that, which doesn't sound very entrepreneurial, I did decide that because one of the areas I had worked in was in pest control, that if I ever had ambitions to be my own boss, to have my own business, I had to find an avenue in order to exercise that ambition. And my way of doing that was to start a pest control company. Not very grand. A number of people, even in my closer circle, sniggered, that someone who'd worked so hard and done quite well to even rise to a senior role in a local government would then take a step back to do something that most people would look down on, catching rats, catching mice, looking for cockroaches. But I saw there was a commercial opportunity and all I did, a very simple thing, and it's what I say to any budding entrepreneur, I picked the best in the industry and I did a better job than them and I charged more. The formula really was that simple.
0: So you you took on the best in the industry, did a better job... Yes. ..and charged more. Yes. Do you think that entrepreneurs or
1: people who are starting up their own business sometimes do the opposite,
0: charge less...
1: Yeah, and it's a big mistake, and if anyone ever comes to me, as, as has happened actually, and said, I've got a great business idea, I can capture most of the market by being cheaper, I usually have a shark intake of breath, and typically within half an hour, we'll find out that the idea is rather flaky. I love it when someone comes and says, the best business in this sector isn't doing as well as it should be and I could do better than them and I see the opportunity to operate at a higher margin, then obviously every light in my head goes on because it's how I built one of my businesses. Which is a key, one of, and um,
0: which then subsequently saw you a couple of years ago becoming an uh, entrepreneur in residence at the University of Dundee. What what an honour.
1: Yeah, it was a, an honour and a privilege, but it's a happenstance of circumstances uh, meeting good people, uh, taking opportunities where they are, bumping into an inspiring leader, uh, Sir Pete Downs, who was the principal at that time and invited me to take on the role as entrepreneur in residence. And I don't do things lightly. I only do things where I know people are serious and have an intensity of wisdom that he displayed to see that this was a serious thing. I want to help my home city... Secondly, Dundee University had a very cosmopolitan group of undergraduates and postgraduate students uh, and I saw the opportunity to do something which was beneficial to, to not only my hometown but to people who will eventually end up spreading across the world. So, yeah, that was a privilege. Uh, But it was a privilege I took very seriously and I I, I gave it a very large part of my life for a period of two years and and was delighted with how my work was received. Leaders.
0: um, We're talking about leaders an awful lot in this series. What what makes a great leader? I mean, I ask that question of everybody and and answers are different. But from your point of view, what makes a, a great leader?
1: I tend to think of names, and I will answer your question properly because it deserves a a good answer. I tend to think of people in my circle. Uh, Sir Pete Downs, who I've just mentioned, a great leader, and it's often the fact that cream rises to the top, and that's a very large and challenging role, and he is the perfect fit for that role. One of my best friends, Stanley Morris. Uh, David Sands, a a very, very inspiring and self-made business person, wholly self-made. Stuart Donaldson, a rising star in the Scottish economy uh, for an offshore supply company. Gary McEwen, one of the UK's best entrepreneurs. And it's not just me saying that. He has won a Queen's Award for entrepreneurship, something I never achieved. And my own son, Liam Brady. And the qualities that these people have are, is, is that they're all bigger people than I am. Uh, and I take my hat off to them and uh, some of them have acted as mentors to me. And anyone listening to that list would think, well, that's all good and well, but they're all blokes. But of course, there's an equal number of females who have influenced my life with the leadership skills that they've shown Alison Blair, who is a Scottish business lady who runs a hospitality business very successfully and has played a large part in, in moulding my own development, Dr. Varry Towler, who I bumped into at the University of Dundee, who is again an entrepreneur, an award winner, multi-award winning entrepreneur. Lindsay Gatherer, who is a young Dundee businesswoman who took a very brave step after redundancy when things looked bleak to start her own business and five years further on still trading successfully. Young person, Rachel Chant, who's an HR manager at 25 years old, looking after hundreds of people very inspiring person. Nicola Watt, who's head of operations for a hospitality company, looking after hundreds of people, inspiring to me. And, of course, my own daughter, Dr Siobhan Brady, who, at 27 years old, even took on a registrar's post in a hospital, despite being concerned that it was a challenge too far. But she showed the leadership qualities not only to take the role, but to come back and say to me she loved being a boss, not because it was an opportunity to be bossy, but because it was an opportunity to train, support and inspire. So the qualities are that these people, that list and others who I haven't named, want to lift others up. First of all, they want to be the best they can be themselves, but secondly, they want to take other people with them. So to finally sum up, it's best summed up by Stanley Morris, who says when he's hiring people, he always looks for people who are bigger than himself, because that way everyone wins. And that's what leadership to me is about, and it's something I've tried to to exercise in my own life, that uh, the way to be successful is to encourage others to be even more successful than you have been. Could you share something with us? Patrick, that took you to a relatively dark place and how you battled that? Yeah, it's not a difficult question for me because I've already said I had an intense and uncertain childhood. And growing up is difficult. And I don't think uh, my story is a unique story, but being a child is difficult. Being a teenager is difficult for all the reasons that people already innately know. And to answer your question, at the age of possibly 14 and a half, 15 years old, uh, an uncle of mine gave me a book to read, and on reflection it was totally the wrong book for a child who was uncertain about themselves to read, because it was a book which he kindly gave in the hope possibly of entertaining me about how to destroy your ego. Now, you can do that when you're a mature adult and you have life experience, but as a a 14-and-a-half-year-old, to read a book that said you need to give more, you need to do more, you need to be lesser, you need to be more humble, you need to be more giving, at 14-and-a-half, that had such a dramatic influence on me, I would say it probably took me many, many years to fully recover the confidence that I needed because it took me to really dark places in my mind where I was doing, when I say crazy things, not silly crazy things, but being such a giving person, I was actually doing it to my own detriment. So rather than growing up as a teenager having fun, I would say, no, my job, my role, having taken seriously the message in that book, is to try harder every time I want something for myself to give more to others. Which sounds very laudable, not really what a child should be doing, and possibly somebody should have spotted that and said, "No, look, you're too young for that message." So it shows you the powers of books. Mm. It shows you a very dark place I was in, and how I got out of that dark place is possibly a story in itself. And
0: you know, we go from one extreme to, to the other, and and he and the, there's more in this story. Uh, that we hopefully will cover in the time that we've got left, but you're now, you know, you know, you know, Patrick Brady, the hypnotist, or the hypnotist, Patrick Brady, uh, and so take me on that journey. I remember the day you told me. Remember the day you told me we were walking up in in Dundee, Scotland. We were walking up the Perth Road, and um, this was a good couple of years ago now. And you said, right, this is what I'm now doing um, or now actually at the time you were a little bit more cryptic you said I'm doing something that's really different I'll tell you when the time's right then the time was right so wh- how did we go from environmental mm-hmm. legal which we've not even touched on because you're a fully
1: fledged lawyer of course, yes, of course. <laughs> you know, so there's that to hypnotist because the answer to that question is in the problem posed by the question before how did I get out of that dark place And although it's not a word I used at that time, it was by delving into my unconscious mind, which is an infinite resource, and finding not the resource to damage it further, but finding the resource to come out of it and to rise to be a confident person. How did you do that at 14? Well, it didn't happen at 14. At 14, 14 and a half, 15 years old, growing up, as a teenager, going through all those difficult things, having this additional burden that I'd taken upon myself to save the world and make it a better place, which is a a laudable thing. It didn't happen until I was about 17 or 18 that I started to read more about the unconscious mind. And I discovered a secret which still to this day, when I say it to people... Someplace deep inside of them, you see a reaction. I discovered at that time, after having lost two and a half years of my life in darker places than, than, uh, uh, than, than I will ever go again, I can say with confidence, I learned this, that thoughts do not come to us as thoughts. Thoughts come to us as emotions. So when we think something, we feel something. And in feeling something, suddenly our unconscious mind takes over. So when you think a thought and you feel an emotion, something very, very strong and challenging. And I learnt, why hadn't I been told this right from an early age? Why hadn't somebody shared the secret with me that the way to overcome the challenges in life is to find the resource to replace that emotion with another emotion? So I took all those dark things that were in my mind and made them white, And I did that at 18, and that encouraged me very slowly, very methodically, to build myself and rebuild myself, Gary, into being a different person from what I might have been.
0: And you give a lot back. You seem to be very grateful for what you have and and for what you've done. Uh, You spent two years um, as a prison visitor... Ten years. Sorry, ten years, forgive me, sorry. Um, Ten years as a prison visitor. That must have been challenging, to say the least.
1: Challenging for the very simple reasons that uh, I'm probably uh, the sort of person that would have least in common with many of the people I befriended in prison. Not because I'm better... Not because I made more of my opportunities, simply because of the fact that if someone's in prison and many of the prisoners I saw were in for very serious crimes, I, I had the opportunity to support some of Scotland's most violent men. So I don't share an awful lot of values and principles with these men, why would I? So that was the challenge for me. Psychologically, considering I'd lifted myself from very dark places and done it successfully, what could I learn from that experience? Is there something I could have given back? What further lessons have I had, had I to learn in that experience of going into a prison on a monthly basis for 10 years, increasing my visits? at the darkest times, which are Christmas, because prisons are not good places at Christmas, so I tended to increase my visits, to expose myself to that atmosphere, but also because it was a vulnerable time for many prisoners. So it wasn't something uh, I would ever regret doing. It was psychologically a challenge, but it was also an important part, yes, of giving, but more importantly of developing myself and seeing psychologically how strong am I And it gave me a lot of confidence that 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 place I'd lifted myself out of, I'd done it really successfully. Because with all the challenges that I faced with some of the visitors, uh, I took a lot of confidence out of the fact that an assistant governor would phone me and say, the reason we want you to visit this person, Patrick, is because they are very challenging individuals. They're very manipulative individuals, and we would like you to spend some time with them. And Isn't there a better compliment that someone can give you in life than to say, here's a challenging problem, the most challenging we've come across, could you share the burden of dealing with it? Books
0: have played a very, very large part in your life. I think so. And um, what I would like you to do is maybe not necessarily suggest a book that's Influenced or changed part of your life But can you, it might be But, but can you suggest a book That could possibly change Somebody listening to this so Some An element or part or the
1: whole of their life yeah, I'm not going to be flippant about this And I've second guessed myself on this suggestion as well So this is not being said flippantly Anyone who knows me, and including yourself Who knows me very well Might think that I'll pick a book like A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens because it's a story of redemption, of bad turning to good. But really, that wouldn't be my choice because that's only Scrooge's story. That's not really an inspiring people, aspiring message for other people because most of us will never have the wealth Ebenezer Scrooge accumulated. So it would not be that book. There is a part of my character and personality which is a bit mischievous. Not not rude, not disrespectful, but a bit cheeky. And the book I'm going to suggest has not only got a good story in it, it's not only a story that is frequently forgotten. It's not only a story that brings a smile to your face. It's a, sto- it's a book that's played a-, a part in my life, actually, and my own mischievousness. If I could share it with you. Ooh, yes, please. And it's a fairy tale. And I brought it with me today, actually. Not the original copy of the, booklet, uh, the book, but it's a Ladybird book called The Emperor's New Clothes. Now, some people listening to this podcast will nod their heads and think, oh, that's the story of the person in charge being taken in and everyone else being taken in. And it took, you know, the most innocent and childish person to point out that the emperor had made a fool of himself and as a result a fool of others. But here's an interesting thing. I've mentioned this fairy tale to three or four people in their 20s and none of them have ever heard the story. Recently? In recent years? Yeah, didn't even know the story and looked at me quizzically. Now, the reason it's mischievous is, anyone listening to this, but I'm going to ask you, don't answer it because I'm going to answer it myself. Have you ever had a bad boss? Now, I've had amazing bosses, bosses who have stretched me, bosses who have challenged me, bosses who have put me in difficult situations in order that I grow and become a better person, and I thank them so much for having been part of my life. I've also had a really poor boss, a very poor leader, somebody who saw their purpose in life to belittle other people, to make themselves bigger by making other people smaller, by exercising their own prejudices in the workplace, simply in order to make life difficult for people. Now, the story of the Emperor's new clothes is the story of someone being so pompous that not only do they make a fool of themselves, they make a fool of others. When this person was my boss, and it was an extended period of time when I was an employee many years ago, The irony is, I don't think that person ever realised that every time they came into my office, every single time they came into my office and I knew they were in the office, I'd pick up that book and read it. And I don't think to this day they ever realised that what I was doing was in my own way having a little laugh at them. And it's OK to do that in life, not to laugh at some of these difficulties, not to laugh at some of these problems, but to laugh at the pompous, those self-assured people who think they've got a right to impose their their own rather odd and peculiar ways on others simply because they're in charge. So I had that book on my desk for three years, and I must have picked up a 100 times uh, that this person came in because uh, a bad boss is not a good experience
0: a bad boss is it indicative of the culture of the business the company the organization
1: i think it can be actually because why did they get appointed well usually they can be a reflection of the culture in that business as well they can be a reflection of the politics that takes place with a small p in any workplace got to say uh, i love was a really bad and, and difficult uh, experience they weren't only a bad boss to me they were a bad boss probably everyone who ever knew them and though they'd be the odd person that would say that they found them okay and beneficial, generally, I think we as people know what bad looks like and uh, it was an experience that I would never wish upon anyone else, but I'm fairly sure, emperors New clothes there are many emperors in the workplace, not only making a fool of themselves, but making a fool of others, and it does take that innocentness, that childishness sometimes to point out that uh, it's there to be exposed for what it is two more questions then we get to your song patrick
0: um young entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs of any age actually listening to this wherever they may be in the world what let's cut it down to three bits of advice if you could or maybe you might just want to give one bit but let's say maximum of three What would you say to somebody listening now going, I've got a great idea, don't quite know what I want to do with it or I want to do X, Y and Z. From one entrepreneur, successful entrepreneur to another potential successful entrepreneur, what would you say?
1: Get out of your own way. Because it's us that holds us back. It's our minds that stop us facing our fears. It's our uncertainties that stop us facing challenges in life. So it's quite possible your circle of friends will enable you in every way to achieve all your ambitions. But unless you get out of your own way, you'll never do it for yourself. And one of the things I do in my talks and demonstrations is to show people, through the tool of hypnosis, how can you get out of your own way? How can you find those things in your unconscious mind that are holding you back? Because you do that, and my own life is testament to the fact in your own way, not only can you become successful, not only you can become happier, you can also have a sense of achievement and be a beacon of light for others. So the important message for me is get out of your own way and a multitude of opportunities will open up for you. And our podcast
0: is, as you know, called Made in Scotland, What do you love about this country and
1: its people? I love its values. I love its caring nature. I love the fact that we look after each other. I think for any entrepreneur in this country, this is a great country to be an entrepreneur because we also have a safety net. We have the safety net of a caring society, of a national health service that looks after people, Therefore, if there's any country where you're going to take a chance and if it's not you, then who else is going to do it? If it's not now, then when is it going to happen? And this country has all the right things in place for entrepreneurs of the future because no-one has ever died of limited companyitis. So what I mean by that is no-one has ever lost their life simply because of the fact that they've gone into business as an entrepreneur. Other things and challenges come along, but the important thing is take a chance and that experience in itself will be part of your growth and development.
0: Patrick Brady, it has been an absolute pleasure and that half hour, a little bit more perhaps, is zoomed by. Um, Before you announce uh, the title of your song choice and the artist, tell me and share with us why have you chosen this particular piece of music?
1: I've chosen this bit of music because it reflects in the lyrics something I think about myself, and if I could explain why. I'm not really sure I know myself. Now, that's not because there's something wonderfully mysterious about me. It's not because there are secrets to reveal. I think if we're all being brutally honest with ourselves, we are on a journey of discovery. And whether it's in life or in business or in commerce or in volunteering work or in public service, a little bit of honesty that we are all on that journey and we've still a lot to discover about ourselves can be the best decision that you ever make because anyone who's very sure that they know every reaction they'll have to every situation is not only far wiser than me, they're possibly very foolish. So the song fully reflects that, and there's a couple of lines in it which, if I could just give you those lines without saying at the moment what the song is. Wife and kids, I have a beautiful life. One set of words. Another set of words, I don't give a damn. I'm as happy as a clam. And the song is? Nobody Knows Me at All by the Wee Piece, and this is a cover version. Okay. One, two, three, and... <laughs>
0: Made in Scotland podcast, sponsored by Ogilvy Ross, was produced by Chris Kidd for Guardian Studios and GRC.